So is dopamine the only driving force in why we seek to accomplish something? I would say it is the primary driving force. Dopamine is the molecule that is creating motivation, craving, and drive for things that are outside our immediate possession or experience, beyond the confines of our skin. So seeking new relationships, seeking a new uh, item that you want to buy, seeking a degree, seeking a win, seeking a trope. Okay, seeking. But there's another set of rewards that have to do with the feelings of pleasure that we derive from things that we already have, that we experience this very intensely around close relationships with people or animals that we feel kinship with. You don't need to seek them. They're just there. It just feels good. Welcome to the Pretty Intense Podcast. Today is definitely pretty intense. Today on the show is Andrew Huberman. He is a neuroscientist, a tenured professor at Stanford University. He has an incredible podcast called the Huberman Lab Podcast, in which I've listened to so many episodes of because maybe you guys have gotten the flow of this, but I basically get really fascinated with somebody and then I see if they'll do my show and allow me the opportunity to ask so many questions that pop up for me when I listen to them. And Andrew is just so brilliant, so fascinating. Dopamine was the first really big topic we talked about. We talked about the system of it and how that works within the body, why we do things and why why we're motivated, why we're not. And then also the importance of that rhythm. Then we kind of parlayed into relationships and how dopamine plays in to relationships and what creates connection and why we choose the partners we choose, as well as grief. And when there's law endings, whether it's a relationship or even, you know, um, maybe a loss of a life. But we talked a little bit about grief and and the difference between grief and depression. I think we spent the first 40 minutes talking about stuff that I had no idea we'd talk about. So I hope you enjoy the flow of this conversation. Uh, If you like the show, please hit the subscribe, um, the bell for notifications of when we have another show come out and leave some comments below about what you think. I love that you have a magnifying glass over your shoulder in the background on the shelf. Yeah. Looks yeah. like a, one of those magnifying glasses. Yeah. That's an, an actually an a, antique uh, Zeiss microscope. I, I have a bit of a microscope thing. I, I love microscopes and I love the history of microscopes. And so that's one that I, I forget where I got that. I think I got that. There's a little store in Santa Monica. Um, oh, and the name escapes. You. Oh, it's called Jadis Props. I have no affiliation to them, but it's a store that I think started off as doing um, props for film. And so they have spacesuits and microscopes and all this nerdy stuff. And I walked in there thinking this was a normal store because that's normal for me. And <laughs> then realized that this was for movies, but they're very nice people there. And so every once in a while I'll drop in there and they have beautifully restored microscopes. And that, that's one of them. What is it about microscopes? I'm curious. That's an interesting fondness. Yeah. Um, well, we may get into this today in terms of um, uh, practical tools, but basically what's interesting about microscopes to me is they have, have two main obsessions in life. I mean, I have actually, I have many obsessions. And, <laughs> um, the joke in my lab is I have about 3,500 obsessions and about 3,500 pet peeves and they don't matter. <laughs> one, but one of my obsessions is time perception and the other one is space perception. So I find it amazing that, you know, we can expand our visual aperture and take in tons of information and experience life through this enormous aperture, right? Panoramic vision, um, as you know, far better than I'm moving through space while perceiving objects around us. 
or we can narrow that visual aperture very rapidly to resolve detail. And, and that fascinates me because it, it speaks to the, the sort of scale and scope of, of human experience. Right. Um, and then in parallel to that, I, I have an obsession with time perception, which is that we can batch time in big bins. Like if you go on vacation and you're laying out on the beach all day, like the day just kind of feels like it goes by and yet you're sort of batching time in these big windows or in moments of very high alertness or stress or, or excitement, positive um, arousal, we start to find slice time at, you know, the equivalent of thousand frames per second. Mm-hmm. We've all experienced this where um, you have a day where you just go and do so many things and it feels like the day just flew by and yeah. yet when you look back, so much happened. Whereas if you go to the doctor's office and you're waiting in the waiting room, it feels like it takes forever. And when you look back, nothing happened. And the the visual aperture and the uh, time aperture actually scale with one another and in some interesting ways. And we understand a little bit about the mechanisms of that. But um, when people talk about things like flow states, yeah. Or um, flow has a very specific name as it relates to learning of skills. And this is the famous work of the psychologist Cheeksamahai when something is just beyond our skill level and we're reaching and reaching and we're making tangible progress. Uh That is what he described as flow. But flow, I believe, also relates to this incredible experience of when our time and space perception is ideally matched to the thing we need to perform. It's a, it becomes, it feels very seamless. You've probably experienced this driving, right? Where all of a sudden, clearly it's you driving the car, but you're not in the mode of having to make decisions. Of course you're making decisions, but what's happening in that state is that you are not perceived, you're um, perceiving time and space in a way that you're not actually perceiving your own decision-making process. Mm. You're moving faster than that. Mm -hmm. Your, um, your, your motor movements are, um, precisely tied to the needs of and the dynamics of the cars around you in the race and right. not tied to your inner narrative. And so that's not quick of, enough. The inner narrative is not quick enough. That's right. So this can get a little abstract, but the short answer is um, I like microscopes because down the microscope, you, you can resolve immense detail. It's like a whole other universe there, right? You look at anything under a microscope is pretty interesting. Um, yeah. Is it a different universe though, or is it or I'm kind of fascinated with the idea of fractals and how our reality can again be under a microscope, zoom down and be similar. Of course, you don't see little people walking, but maybe it's something biological. Maybe it's bacteria. I don't know. And then when you look from a macro level, also things can have similar patterns. What do you think about when you think about that obsession or that curiosity? Is there a question you ask yourself when it comes to um, the microscope, the micro macro and the time? Like, what are the questions you actually are seeking perhaps? Yeah. Well, you, you um, make the important point exactly, which is that there's a, um, uh, there's a buildup of anything and everything from the same component parts. Right. I mean, you know, protons and electrons and atoms. We all know that. Um, but in terms of the, and in terms of how we build up a kind of what, what we call in neuroscience, a hierarchical structure, I'll explain what I mean by that. And just briefly, when you look at anything like a face or a car, 
the perception of that thing is built up from very basic filters and elements that exist in the eye and elsewhere in the brain that basically take the visual scene around you and break it up into dark lines and light lines and moving things and the direction they're moving and then creates these perceptions really that this best guess about what's out there okay. so for instance if i draw two dots on a piece of paper and a line right below it and i show it to you you will get a slight sense that that's a face right but if i were to draw the line vertical in less so and if i were to draw the line you know um uh curved and off to the side, you would never think that was a face. What that tells us is that our perception of faces is built up from these basic component parts. And indeed it is. So there's this kind of what's called a hierarchical models. And this is how we perceive everything, um, everything. Um, so a song has its component parts of tones and et cetera. Um, so when I look down the microscope, you know, there's an ability to for us to shrink our, our perception into that narrow space and time domain and to kind of get lost in it. But what's remarkable about the human experience and actually what's remarkable about being human, um, and we don't think other animals have this, although we don't know for sure, is that we can deliberately expand or contract our space and time perception. I can make the decision to be in this Zoom and, and, and narrowly focused. I can make the decision to expand my thoughts. I can um, and, you know, nowadays there are, people talk a lot about ADHD and ADD, some of which is clinically valid attention deficit disorders, some of which is just kind of being distracted. We are having a harder time nowadays because of the number of things pulling us out of this like, kind of tunnel of focus. That said, I think that human beings have evolved and thrived on largely on their basis of people's willingness to stay in a narrow aperture of experience. So learning to drive a, a race car and then to race at the level that you have and to do the other things that you've done requires a either a love of and or a dedication to being in a pretty narrow aperture set of experiences. Exactly. Right? And to not life, actually, it's funny. I, we, I can talk about that, but that's exactly right. Yeah. And I think that inside of those narrow apertures are we create new milestones and rewards. And this gets, it speaks to the kind of the reward systems of the brain are pretty generic. Um, they relate to dopamine and serotonin, mainly, mo mostly dopamine. Um, dopamine is this incredible neurochemical that makes us feel motivated and in a state of craving and drive. When you think about when you're in a narrow aperture of say, pursuing a school degree or uh, pursuing uh, a win in a, in a race, I mean, it's as if this system, which is indeed very generic dopamine, you're now saying, okay, the currency of reward is not the dollar or the Bitcoin or the Euro, it's dopamine. And I'm going to superimpose that onto this narrow aperture of experience. Now you finish that. And then the, you, a healthy person says, um, a healthy athlete or student or physician, whatever says, um, okay, now I'm going to make the dopamine about the healthy relationships of my life or that my health, my bodily health, the unhealthy entrepreneur, parent, athlete, et cetera, hat can only derive dopamine inside the narrow tunnel of that one experience. Right. And, and, the, and in that sense, it's very much like true addiction um, drugs like cocaine, amphetamine in particular, but other drugs as well for some people, alcohol, but not everybody, they create, a dopamine loop whereby the drug 
is the only thing that can really give that intense dopamine release. And so the way I define addiction, as opposed to a healthy focused pursuit is addiction is a progressive narrowing of the things that bring you pleasure, right? Whereas a being a healthy person means you have three, four, 50, a thousand things that bring you pleasure. So you're able to take this very basic system and use it for different things. So, um, all that said, you know, this narrowing of aperture is fundamental to how we arrive to be the dominant species on the planet, right? We're in charge, not the house cats, because somebody took the time and really got excited about building tools <laughs> um, that house cats, if they had the idea in mind, they actually never made it happen. Uh, so, it's you know, these systems of focus and expanding focus and shifting focus, and then the reward system, which is universally dopamine a few other molecules also, but mostly dopamine that's been used over and over and over again, not just for a hundred years or a thousand years, but probably for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. When I visited Egypt, I was introduced to an expert aromacologist who explained the healing powers of various scents. I returned home with 18 bottles of powerful essences that unlocked specific feelings and had all sorts of healing properties. I became inspired to find a functional way to deliver them in a new consumer lifestyle product. Candles became my medium. Voyant means seer, a reference to the inner eye chakra one of the key energy points in the body essential to wellness and healing. Voyant is a doorway to openness and imagination, a catalyst in our daily journey. Whether you're connecting with others or enjoying alone time, Voyant strives to beautify the home and the soul to create a haven of peace and joy. The candle is delivered with a beautiful monogram 12-ounce stemless wine glass, which can be used after the wax is gone. My limited edition candle collection is available exclusively at voyantbydanica.com. So is dopamine the only driving force in why we seek to accomplish something? Um, great question. Uh, I would say it is the primary driving force. It's, it's supported by other molecules. So um, we can very clearly state uh, from a place of, I think, great confidence that dopamine is the molecule that is creating motivation, craving, and drive for things that are outside our immediate possession or experience, beyond the confines of our skin. So seeking new relationships, seeking a new uh, item that you want to buy, seeking a degree, seeking a win, seeking a trope. Okay, seeking. But there's another set of rewards that have to do with the feelings of pleasure that we derive from things that we already have. Um, that we experience this very intensely around um, close relationships with people or animals that we feel kinship with and we great, great joy from their, their mere presence, right? Yeah. You don't need to seek them. They're just there. It just feels good. Um, yeah. The meal that you're currently preparing and eating is very different than the food you're trying to hunt or go buy to, to, to eat. Um, and the second reward system is mainly governed by the molecule serotonin. It's more of a, of a calm sense of reward. And I, we can say that because dopamine, the molecule dopamine is actually biochemically converted into adrenaline. It actually is the, the thing from which adrenaline is created. And adrenaline is what gives us energy to move, not caloric energy, but neural energy to go pursue things. Serotonin is much more woven into the systems of the brain and body that make us feel not just willing, but 
perfectly content to stay still. Like, ah, oh, it's really nice here. I really love this, you know, the feeling of this person. I don't produce enough serotonin. <laughs> well, and I think the two systems compete. Um, and there's a and people are are, you know, skewed one way or the other somewhat. Um, there are skills and things that one can do to learn to access these different systems. Um, and there are other reward systems and motivational systems too. Um, the so-called endogenous opioid system, we all can make these endogenous kind of painkiller feel-good molecules. These are not the opioids of the opioid crisis, although the molecules are exactly the same. The opioid crisis is due to companies making a synthetic version of this soothing painkiller molecule and then putting it in a pill that provides it at very high dosages. Now that has clinical uses. Like if you go in for a surgery nowadays, they'll prescribe fentanyl almost mm-hmm. always. But of course they can be abused and they have, they're highly addictive because normally we don't experience fentanyl levels of opioid circulating in our body unless we've you know run a hundred mile race and we're trying to save our family from famine or something, perhaps just as an adaptive mechanism. But yeah, I would say that dopamine is responsible for most of what humans have accomplished. And, and those who are able to access it, and I have to, you know, presume that this is um, probably what your experience has been. I mean, that ability to set a goal, a milestone and work toward it. Oh man, only driving force. Literally. That's what people ask me why I, what I love about racing. I was like setting a goal and achieving it. Yeah. Well, and, and dopamine is interesting because it, it obeys a very simple set of rules, which fall under the umbrella of what's called reward prediction error. And when you hear this, it's sort of a duh, but we know this from literally recordings from neurons using electrodes or imaging. If you suddenly get a a surprise that you like, dopamine is massively released and it gets you all excited and motivated to pursue of what you think preceded that. Okay. Finding, I don't know, for a kid walking along the street, I don't know when I was a kid, finding a hundred dollar bill would have been like, whoa, like check this out. This is a lot of money. Um, If you are pursuing something or someone or any kind of milestone and you don't reach it there, what happens is dopamine actually increases in anticipation of potential rewards, not from the reward itself. A lot of people don't realize this. And if you don't get that, let's say you are hell bent on a gold medal, not silver, not bronze, but platform gold medal, and you end up with a silver, your baseline of dopamine drops below what it was prior to the pursuit. In the heart of Napa Valley lays Somnium, which means to dream in Latin. The Somnium Vineyard Estate is an extension of the love and intensity that I pour into everything I do. To experience our wines, visit somniumwine.com and use the code SOMNIUM to receive a $10 flat shipping rate. Please drink responsibly. Athletes know this, right? Dude, I've lived this my whole, I mean, am I screwed? No, you know, cognitive, the, the beautiful thing about the dopamine system is that the prefrontal cortex, which is involved in planning and decision making and rationalization is also wired into the system. So one can say, okay, that was a learning experience. And I, the rewards came from okay. the fact that I didn't get bronze or whatever. We can reframe, but okay. in, in the strictest sense, that's the way dopamine reward prediction error works. Now, the other thing is also true, which is that if we are in pursuit of something and then we achieve it, there's a positive feedback loop whereby the brain and nervous system 
better remembers all the steps that led to that successful completion of the milestone. So this is wired into so oops, excuse me, into so-called neuroplasticity, which is our brain's ability to change. And so you start thinking about how success breeds success. Yeah. That's all about dopamine. Wow. You start thinking about how failure, you know, people start creating this narrative, especially in depressive states of like, it's just not worth trying anymore. In some ways they're protecting, they're subconsciously protecting the dopamine yeah. they still have. And, and I was fascinated to learn that recently there've been studies showing that people who have chronic pain, the pain itself actually starts becoming wired into this dopamine system. It's very interesting. You know, there are these people who um, are always talking about their pain. Sure. Always talking about, it. it's almost like, gosh, like for somebody who's not in chronic pain, it, that can be very perplexing and sometimes even yeah. annoying. You're like, gosh, this person, like all I hear about is the hard relationship, the hard, the pain. Yeah. Yep. And, and oops, I don't know if that's on my side or not. I, um, okay. In, in no. case. Um, but in any case, the, the, that system can start becoming its own reward mechanism whereby the thinking about the pain actually starts to trigger dopamine release. And so this is a, a rather, this is a uh, adaptive flipping of the circuit. So there's a lot of dimensions that this could go, but for somebody who's very driven, who wants to be the best, who has a milestone, I would say two cautionary notes. One, first, first of all, that's beautiful and that's wonderful. And that's a lot of what makes life rich. Two, one needs to make sure that along the way you are registering the wins, the the milestones, setting mm-hmm. some closer horizon milestones. Yeah. Yep. And then the third is that the schedule of reward that works best for keeping people in a healthy state of mind of pursuit is one of the same one that the casinos use to extract money from you, which is random intermittent reward. Here's what I mean. The slot machine, it does, it's not every 10 pulls that keeps people playing a win every 10 pulls. It's the randomness of it, right? As soon as you're ready to walk away, you get a win and then it keeps people going. This, we can apply this in our own lives that, and this is especially true with kids. It's great to reward your wins, but every once in a while, take that gold medal and just say, don't say it wasn't good enough, but just go right back into living life and pursuing new new pursuits. What what I've seen over and over again is that people that are very driven become so attached to this dopamine reward system yeah. that they get the re- the they reach the milestone, excuse me, and then they feel depressed. Well, why? Because dopamine is released by pursuit, motivation and craving, not by reaching the reward itself. So the journey being the destination is a, is a dope, again, a dopaminergic, as we say, phenomenon. So it's important to have goals, perhaps very lofty goals, the long-term ones so that you stay in the pursuit for longer. But then, like you said, you need the incremental goals to stay satisfied, essentially. And correct. And, and to keep you driven. So dopamine, it's there's a beautiful experiment that illustrates this. This has been done in animals and, and just by way of natural circumstances in humans. Let's talk about the animal experiment because um, it's simply you take two rats, separate cages. Um, rats like food and they'll lever press for a, a piece of chocolate or something tasty, especially. Um, they can achieve pleasure. Now you take those rats and you put them behind a little wall 
or they have to do some work like climb over the wall to mm. get to the lever. Both of them will do that. Now you take one of those rats. And again, this was done with humans as well. And you deplete its dopamine. You put them in right in front of the lever. Both of them will sit there and eat the food. Dop- dopamine is not required to experience pleasure. But now if you remove the wall, but you put the rats just one rat length away from the lever, what you'll notice is the one that has dopamine because it's a normal rat, will walk towards the lever, press it, and get the food. The rat or person who does not have dopamine won't even move one body length away to reach pleasure. So the key takeaway here, whether or not you're a highly driven person or not, is that rewards achieved without prior effort don't tap into the dopamine system. And they basically will cripple an organism or human at the level of the mind, such that you can't really experience pleasure the same way. What do I mean by this? So if you're scrolling on Instagram for an hour a day, and that's great, it feels great. You see things, you see people, you get some likes, you put some comments, you know, et cetera. If you do that over and over, what you find is that you're sort of on there, but you don't even know why. Or if you've ever eaten a delicious piece yeah. of food when you're hungry, tastes great. But if you've ever just sort of been eating, you don't even know why you're eating. It doesn't even taste that good. And yet you feel this compulsion to keep going. And that's because the whole dopamine system is really geared towards trying to reestablish this baseline. And if we know one thing for sure about dopamine is that if you have a big peak of dopamine, it always goes back down to baseline and sometimes a little bit below baseline. And that below baseline generates a feeling of pain and lack. This is well-known neurochemically. It's well-known psychologically. After a big win, there's always going to be a crash. Sometimes next day, sometimes three weeks later. That crash is actually a resetting mechanism of levels of dopamine. So if, if you're ever feeling especially low and like you're not motivated, that could be one of two things. One, you're not in pursuit enough, but if that low or a motivation comes from, or lack of motivation comes from having been working really hard or in pursuit, you need some rest in order to reset the dopamine system. A lot of people that experience a big win or there's this phenomenon of postpartum depression. Um, you know, a child finally arrives, it's born and then some, and then women, oftentimes men too, but more often this is described for women will feel intense depression. Um, the anticipation is gone and this can be very detrimental, of course, for them and for the baby, but it's, there's a, all that needs to happen is a waiting period where we are not in pursuit and then it comes back to baseline. So everyone differs in terms of how long and how you know, how much to pursue things. But once we learn to kind of dance with these mechanisms, we can learn to really be in pursuit and then throttle back. I'm sure it's a lot like driving. I don't know anything about race car driving, but I get the sense from watching a few races that it seems like they're not racing the whole time. Is that right? Is that? Yeah, there are definitely times where you're more conservative or you're playing it safe or you're conserving Mm -hmm. your tires or fuel or, you know, something like that. There are times like that for sure. Mm -hmm. And I guess you have the pit stop in racing, which um, is sort of, I guess it's sort of analogous to some of these neurochemical resets. Yeah. Yeah. In any event, uh, I guess we went down the the rabbit hole of of dopamine, but, but that is, I I think at at our core, uh, I think dopamine is responsible for so much of our, our life experience. Yeah. So will we 
always get back to baseline if we rest enough? Or are there ways to lower your baseline dopamine levels? And if there is, how do you get them back up again? Yeah. So the, the quickest way to deplete your dopamine and to end up in a, in a vicious, often dangerous cycle of um, pursuit is any of the classic uh, descript, uh, addictive drugs. So especially the drugs that trigger dopamine release. So um, cocaine and amphetamine are the most famous for creating the most dopamine release. And as a consequence, what happens is, okay, so let's say, and I, of course, I, I'll just say it. I mean, no one should use these drugs. These are very destructive for the following reason. The first time somebody uses cocaine or amphetamine, they get a massive increase in dopamine. Mm-hmm. because of the way those drugs are chemically structured. Mm-hmm. Then the next time it's a little bit less and a little bit less and a little bit less. And mm-hmm. then they use either the same amount or progressively more and more. And they're now dropping below baseline just to get to normal, right? Any addict knows this. Yeah. Um, now behaviors can do the same thing for some people that these are called process addictions, but shopping addiction, sex addiction, porn addiction, mm-hmm. um, uh, adrenaline addiction. I mean, people have their, Every, you know, different people have their things. Some people have less of an addictive personality. Some people more, uh, there's some genetic biases there in terms of the, there's certainly circumstantial biases, right? If we know one thing for sure, if, if someone never has access to a drug, they're less likely to abuse that drug. Um, this is, I'm not talking about, yeah. Oh, that's, that's well-established. I mean, uh, to, I'm not getting into the legal or political side of this, but, um, there are other dangers with making uh, certain things illegal too. So, you know, that's a, that's a political legal discussion, but in terms of the biology, um, the key here is to understand that the bigger the dopamine increase, the bigger the crash and the less likely it is that you'll ever continue to achieve pleasure from that thing. So let's take it to a, maybe a less sinister set of examples. Let's say the kind of person that likes exercise. But now you decide, yeah, I love exercise, but now you decide you're going to listen to music while you exercise, which itself kind of boosts your dopamine. Great. That's great. But now that peak is getting a little bit bigger. Now, let's say you're like me and you like a a double espresso before doing any exercise. Great. And then now let's say you add to that one of the more high potency um, pre-workout drinks that are out there with say L-tyrosine, which is the Mm. amino acid precursor to dopamine. Great. I've taken those. There's some terrific ones out there. You you feel like you can conquer the world plus music, but okay, great. Now let's say um, you do that a few times and you notice you need a bit more of the pre-workout drink, the music to be a little bit louder. And it doesn't quite feel like the first time, right? Mm-hmm. So what's happening is you're starting to do what's called dopamine layering or stacking. You're starting to bring in more and more things. Um, people will take, there are natural behaviors that for evolutionary reasons make perfect sense. Um, human reproduction is closely tethered to the, to the dopamine system. And I'm not just talking about sex, the verb, I'm talking also about the pursuit of a mate, the excitement about somebody new, you know, the, the feeling that you don't need to sleep and life is so amazing in the early part of a romantic love it, that's dopamine. That's just pure dopamine. Like the, the thinking about them all day, that's that shrinking of the narrow of the visual aperture and the sort of cognitive aperture also. Right. And then typically that will be, uh, you know, because evolution also understands that we need to like nourish ourselves and get sleep and live our lives and things. Right. I mean, although we've probably, you and I probably both know people that they fall in love and they sort of stop doing anything else besides fixating on the person. Right. I uh, just general message to, I, 
to people out there, like that's not conducive to the success of the relationship, you know, <laughs> missing someone is actually a case of dopamine reward prediction error. Ah. Um, texting someone and not hearing back is reward prediction error in the negatives, so, right? Here it is. They always respond on a certain latency. It's like the slot machine every 10th pull. Now it's like, what happened? That's that anticipation. Like, hey, hey, what's going on? That's dopamine again. Um, so in a typical scenario, though, we can leverage this stuff by just understanding that there's nothing wrong with dopamine peaks. There's nothing wrong with being really excited and happy and motivated. That's beautiful. Um, mm -hmm. But we need to toggle back and forth between dopamine states and rest states. And I think that a lot of people who are very driven or excited about the next thing, the new thing, you know, I saw this the other day, right? Kids get ice cream, you give them ice cream and they take the first lick of ice cream and they want to know, can we have ice cream tomorrow also? And you're like, <laughs> like they're completely out of the experience of it. And, and you're not trying to create little like Zen Buddhists where you're like, oh, wait, let's be in the experience of the ice cream. But it's so interesting to see that the way the mind works because, and, and here uh, there's a great book about dopamine. There are two actually, neither of which I had anything to do with, unfortunately, I would have loved to write these, but the first one is called the molecule of more because dopamine is all about more. If you find yourself eating a piece of chocolate and your first sense is, ooh, that's delicious, I'm savoring it, I want more. That's the dopamine system putting you into anticipation of the next little blip of dopamine. Um, there's the book, The Molecule More, speaks to this in a number of different ways. It's a beautiful book. The other book that talks more about sort of the pitfalls of dopamine and how it can lead to addiction both substance abuse and behavioral addictions is the book by my colleague at Stanford, Dr. Anna Lemke, who runs our dual diagnosis um, uh, addiction clinic. She's a MD and psychiatrist, and it's called Dopamine Nation. And it's about dopamine and how it can take us down these somewhat complicated paths. She actually talks about her own uh, behavioral addiction that she developed hmm. and explains that. And, and the solution to this is generally 30 days at least of no interaction with whatever the thing is, which for some yeah. people might seem excruciating, but um, that's generally the reset. Um, but the serotonin- is now chocolate? How do I do, how do I do that? Well, I'll tell you one thing. It will make chocolate taste that much better when you return to it. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, um, <laughs> it will make it feel like the first time, right? <laughs> um, and yet, uh, you know, we, we of course- don't have to be neuroscience uh, stoics about all this. It, you know, life is to be enjoyed. So, but I think if one is getting less pleasure from the same things, oftentimes it means not pursuing that thing or other kind of high dopamine states quite as much. Yeah. Good evidence for that. This is why, um, you know, nowadays there's talk about dopamine detox, which is this kind of extreme version of like not experiencing any pleasure. I think that's a little bit much. There are also some interesting things that many people like myself enjoy caffeine. Caffeine increases dopamine receptors, which make whatever dopamine is available more effective in driving dopamine increases. So I would say toggle it, right? Yeah. Um, and and I guess with, in, I should ask you, in, you know, in, in your uh, race car driving career, um, were there times in which you felt that the pursuit just wasn't giving you the same edge? And in which case did you think about bigger goals or did you think about kind of bringing the horizon in towards smaller goals? Yeah, that definitely happens where you can kind of, I think that's actually, I feel like that almost happens kind of more macro levels for your career when you kind of just lose the spark for it. Um, it kind of comes and goes, I think, 
on a more micro level race to race weekend. But I think about it more prevalently in the macro of your career where you just kind of lose the drive for it anymore. It's just something's not really motivating you anymore. It's not fun. It's not, you know, you start thinking about the negatives or thinking about the danger or thinking about the things that you've so tunnel vision um, ignored and not seen. Um, but that, yeah, I think that's what happens. And I think that, uh, especially in sports, I think usually when it, that probably does happen, that's, I think why careers end quickly is because you're at such at a level and there's such an amount of energy and effort and danger in some, some cases that you, you're just, you can't put yourself in that scenario anymore, even if you're just slightly out. Yeah. Danger is an interesting one because, um, it, danger and the relief that comes from escaping danger can have their own um, kind of addictive loop. I was watching this, I don't know, um, the movie, of course, a free solo, right? Oh yeah. 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 Like yep. Alex Honnold. I mean, I, apparently he, and these are his words, not mine. It, neurologically, he seems skewed towards experiencing less anxiety and fear than, than typical people would. He, he may have some wiring either by experience or by genetics or both that, kind of lead him to be less stressed in high risk, high consequence circumstances. But, you know, that's an interesting movie because you know, he lives and yet yeah. it still freaks you out to watch. And I don't think it's just the visual. So it's the possibility that he might fall. That is essentially the crux of the movie. Although they did a good job of making it about him also. And his, yeah. I would say his more, um, I don't know, uh, like his philanthropy and, and some of his other efforts too. Yeah. So, I think that the, I think the key thing here is to have, again, addiction is a narrow, progressive narrowing of the things that bring us pleasure. And I, I don't know anything about enlightenment, but I could say that a good life is one in which you can derive pleasure from your morning cup of coffee, the sunshine, interactions with people, and your big, bigger goals. Um, we so reward, especially in the US, right? Um, we so reward people who just, you know, set that like Michael Jordan level of focus. I mean, they, because they they provide the entertainment for the rest of us, right? Um, I'm not a big basketball fan, but if I were going to watch basketball, I'd probably, you know, enjoy watching him because he, right. what he does is so phenomenal or what did. Right. But, you know, the cost to that person's nervous system and to the nervous systems of the people around them is, is a real one. Um, Don't get away with anything. Yeah, exactly. And, and to test, you know, because they're, those people often end up in a circumstance where they can't have much pleasure unless they're winning. And it was interesting. And then that last dance documentary about Jordan, where he talks about how, even if he was just playing a game for a dollar, for a dollar, it was like clearly competition was his dopamine. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and, and that's beautiful too, right? We need people like that. I yeah. Know. So I think that he, I, I found it fat. He, he was fascinating that I found that he um, seemed like he almost artificially sort of built up rivalries and like frustrations and um, uh, like a battle in his head. Like, Oh, you think that about me? And it might not have even been that true. He, but it just seemed like he exacerbated these ideas and it became his driving force. Um, it was kind of a fascinating psychological you know, uh, show. It, it was. And, and, you know, as somebody, you know, I've always loved biology and science and, but, you know, I made a decision my freshman year, uh, the end of my freshman year of college, it was, you know, PhD by the time I'm 30, 
junior faculty member, professor by the time I'm 35, tenure Stanford or Harvard by the time I'm 40. Like that was it. Like focus, like that was it. And I had some other goals too. I wanted to, you know, maintain decent physical shape and be a nice person and like other things too. But when I finally reached those goals, I actually had a big crash. I was like, what do I do now? I didn't have a next phase goal. I knew I wanted to continue doing science and eventually public communication of science, but it's so important that we have goals because again, goals and milestones are the the thing of motivation and excitement. We just can't have only those goals. We need many goals. We have to have the goal of, you know, making a great omelet for breakfast, which I still haven't mastered, right? But we have to have all these goals of uh, for ourselves mm-hmm. all day long. I forget who said it. Was it like St. Augustine or something said that like a good life requires a, like a constant reordering of our loves or something like that. I'm terrible at, at quotes, but constantly updating what it is that we, that we are in love with for that moment and then shifting to the next thing. Yeah. And of course, that serotonin system is vital. You know, if if we cannot enjoy the things that we already have and that require no pursuit, if we can't take ourselves into those moments of just really appreciating what we have and, and not just gratitude, but really savoring the experience of what we're in, we will never be able to go back to the goal pursuit mode as, a, as well or as efficiently. So it really is like the seesawing back and forth between right. like loving a good night's sleep but also loving being the person who bounces out of bed in the morning with a goal, right? Um, loving, like being, for me, you know, like just being a total sloth all day, one day a week. I mean, I, I turn into a, like, I literally think about the animal, the sloth. I even have a sloth on it that day. It's ridiculous. But just, I literally take a full day of each week and try and just enjoy being in the, the microscope of like, just hanging around and doing that. I don't always achieve that because of life constraints, but then also on Monday morning or Sunday, if it were, whatever your schedule is really putting, you know, the goal in the crosshairs and getting that dopamine system ramped up again. Oh man, that's, that's a good goal. I, I am not sure I could achieve the one day of doing nothing, but I think that's actually a good goal. It always seems like it's about cycling with everything. I'm curious how this plays into relationships because I'm quite, quite fascinated with relationships and the point of them and the balance and the real nature, human nature of them. And I'm wondering if relationship, because it's something we seek and then it's something we accomplish essentially at some points in time, sometimes once, sometimes many times. Um, And then, you know, sometimes they end, but also once you get them, there's some sort of an end to the seeking. And so I'm curious about how this dopamine loop plays into relationships. Yeah. Relationships are fascinating. I think are at at least within the quadrant of key things for our evolution, right? Because up until now, we've been talking about dopamine and serotonin in this kind of fixed unimodal way, like one person and the goal. And maybe in race car driving, it broadens the context to, well, there are other people chasing a goal and there can only be one winner, right? But in relationships, everything changes because now you're talking about two nervous systems, right? Or if you think about a family, you know, that is more than two, you're saying about multiple systems, each with their own set of motivational constraints, 
interacting and controlling each other's dopamine. So it becomes a very hard problem at the, at the, at the experimental level in the lab. On the other hand, there are a number of things known about this. And uh, we did an episode of my podcast on, on the, your attachment and- um, Oh yeah, we, I listened to the whole thing. Okay. Um, <laughs> I always joke, the episodes of my podcast are very long and- um, Took and, two days, took two <laughs> days, but I did. <laughs> well, the um, I always joke, if nothing else, I'll cure insomnia. But, the, um, but, <laughs> but in terms of relationships, there are a couple of core things um, that we, we can, that we know for sure. First of all, parent, or we should say caretaker child attachment during development sets the template. Right. Two, that template can be modified. Three, we should underscore the first one, which is that the neural circuitry that defines healthy, secure attachment or insecure attachment or anxious attachment or avoidant attachment, all these things we could get into in detail if you like. Sure. Those are repurposed in romantic relationships. The brain does not take real estate that it formed in development and just say, oh, that was for childhood. Now I'm an adult. It repurposes it. So, but there's another rule, which is very important and is often overlooked. And I, I just really want to illustrate this. These relationships that are established in childhood are repurposed in romantic and other types of relationships in adulthood. But that doesn't mean that it's one for one in terms of of like dad, mom, let me explain. Let's say um, there's a, a young woman or a baby, right? Who grows up a young child and she has a great relationship with her dad, loving, secure, he's he's honest, predictable, reliable. Um, they have good rapport, it's a, strong feelings of support. But let's say she has a um, negative relationship with her mother, it's anxious, avoidant, there's condemning, there's, um, it's it, it feels insecure, it's unpredictable, all the kinds of things we associate with ancient attachment. Mm -hmm. Let's say in this particular example, this young girl defines herself as, and is heterosexual. She's attracted to males. Okay. When she grows up, she may find herself, may find herself getting in relationships with people that are not secure and, and, you know, and behaving like her dad, you may, she may find that she's drawn to, um, men that are that are like mildly abusive or avoidant or hmm. and you say, well, how could that be? She had a great relationship with her dad. Yeah. It always, always, always there is a this rule in psychoanalysis and in psychology, which is that none of this stuff is wired for one specific gender or the other. I, her preference is she I, in this example, hypothetical example, she's heterosexual. She's only attracted to to men romantically, but. The attachment circuitry, what feeds the reward system and predictability and punishment systems, et cetera, can be very much superimposed from the relationship with mom, which was not good in this example, to the dad. And this is really key because people, yeah. someone had a great relationship with to their dad, great dad. Why would she end up in these with these, yeah. you know, yep. these these terrible men? And maybe all men are bad or whatever. And and yep. um, that's not the way it works. The circuitry is it runs an algorithm. It's like two plus two plus two equals five in this person. And you got like two plus two doesn't equal five. She knows it doesn't like, this is crazy, but I'm not uh, in her mind. She's thinking, oh, uh, you know, I'm not drawn to people that are healthy for me. Why would that be? Okay. So that's an important thing to illustrate because I think a lot of times we hear childhood attachment translates yeah. to adult attachment and people overlook the fact that there can be a swapping of, yeah. of gender mm -hmm. in, in kind of arrangements. Okay. Totally. 
And there needs to be a relearning. Now, fortunately, the relearning can occur. There's a great book called Attached that yeah. helps people. This was written by two psychologists that helps people define their attachment style. And um, I don't know that they made the, this point about crossover uh, from mother to father to adult preference mm-hmm. as salient as maybe they should have. But in any case, now, in terms of relationship, let's think of the typical arc of relationship. Two people meet. We're thinking romantic relationship now. Yeah. Um, yeah. They meet. There's an there's an interest. There's there's either you one would hope a physical attraction and an intellectual emotional attachment or attraction. Mm-hmm. So there's a number of like potential rewards there. And then you know the dance that is relationship making is one of people anting up off, um, vacation or anting up living together or um, you know even just the whole dance of who pays for things. It's like people are are offering resources. And people are getting excited in anticipation. They're, they're failures, right? So-and-so didn't call back. They canceled. They're, they're consistent. Like the, the things of value that one values become the things of dopamine reward prediction error. Okay. If you value communication consistency and um, mm. throughput, it, for someone to, to provide those would give you immense dopamine release. Like, wow, this person is really reliable. Now, okay. here's the stinger. For certain people, that is important to them, but they just sort of expect it, right? So if someone does it, it's not like they're like, wow, this person is so great. This is the danger of, of having a healthy upbringing, I always joke, is huh. that like, of course, like it's like someone who grows up with uh, two Ferraris in the in the parking lot, um, out in the driveway, and then someone picks them up in, in a really nice car and they're like, yeah, but Ferraris are kind of the way life works, right? That wasn't yeah, your BMW is fine, but... Exactly. So there's always this kind of unique tailoring of how the dopamine system works. But what we know for sure is that the early phases of relationship is just a a negotiating of rewards and let's hope not punishment. Now, at some point, if people enter a committed relationship, there is this attenuation of novelty and novelty is, is the, remember the surprise the the novelty is the strongest stimulus for dopamine. When one doesn't expect something to happen and it happens and it's positive, the dopamine system goes crazy. Mm-hmm. Just like, mm-hmm. and, and over time, as we learn to predict people's behavior, you know, like someone brings flowers every Friday, that's beautiful. But right. if they don't bring it on a Friday, oh, that's, yeah. that's oh. if they do it every Friday, remember, I'm not saying you, people shouldn't do that. I love these routines that people build. But if they but if they bring it every Friday, it does not have the same potency. I have a question before you move. We we kind of evolve this arc of relationships and what it means. So you talked about that things that we value, like the relationship gets established on things that we value. And I'm wondering if within the circuitry from childhood that while it's not healthy, there is a hormonal value for your own loop of whatever it is that you seek for the dopamine hit and it doesn't need to be good. Is that something that you value? And that is that why you get into unhealthy relationships? Example being, you know, you, um, you know, your mother was in this scenario you gave the dad is sort of secure and reliable, but the mom is um, maybe more of the problem. And so you seek the loop of your mother you're seeking that loop and there's a dopamine hit with it. So is that part of the problem with relationships that exists? If we don't understand what our unhealthy dopamine hits are that we tend to find ourselves in unhealthy relationships. Uh, The short answer is yes. 
And um, there is a name for it in the psychology literature. It's the so-called repetition compulsion. Like why would somebody continue to put themselves into scenarios that are emotionally or even physically dangerous for them that the older psychoanalytic view of this, and it may be right, was that one does that, someone does that subconsciously as a way to try and get it right again yeah. and again. And right, correct the original wound, right? Correct the original wound. Some people, of course, will take their childhood and say, I'm never, ever, ever going to be with a person like that. And they, and this is always beautiful when one sees it, right? It's like, they, yeah. I have a friend, she grew up in a home that was, it, it just financially, it was a very complicated place. And so she prioritized being in a stable financial situation. It wasn't about being wealthy. It was just stability and mm -hmm. never deviated from that. Mm. But other people might engage in the repetition compulsion of being in these kind of tumultuous financial situations. And it's the resolution and failure and resolution and failure that seems to be the drug for them. The short answer is yes. I mean, I think that these reward mechanisms are set very early on. Fortunately, they can be modified. Again, we have this power of awareness that the, the, this is why talking about these reward mechanisms and understanding them actually has applied value. There's not like a drug that you can take to suddenly change these, these reward mechanisms. Understanding how they work, I do believe, and there's evidence for the fact that they really can help us reshape what's important because we can say, gosh, it's like a car that wants, here, I'm using all these automobile things. So right, I, I love it, it's fine. But it's like when you're out of, when it's out of alignment, like it's veering right. It's like veering right. So you just know you kind of have to turn the wheel a little bit more. You have to kind of like, like lean into 11 o'clock or else the thing is going to just veer. You just know that. And, and the, the challenge is it takes effort just, you know, and it, it takes attention. But when our default state is to take us to uh, unhealthy places, you know, uh, there's a, a friend of mine, he's a, a superb psychiatrist. Um, and he always, uh, um, you know, it, a, it, he always says about relationships, you know, you get this person who um, has been in, they'll say, I've been in seven abusive relationships. And he says, no, actually, you've been in one relationship seven times. Uh, it's, a, it's the same thing, right? Yeah, it's not exactly. just a word. Yeah, it's not just a word, word flip. Um, and forgive me, I misspoke. This isn't a friend. I, I have a friend who's a psychiatrist. This isn't a friend of mine. Um, this is a, a former guest on the podcast, Paul Conti. Doctor oh, Paul yeah. Conti. Yep. I've talked to him. He's done amazing work on trauma. Okay. And I think that was where Paul's words and, and specifically, and I, I, I we're, we're friendly, but I, but I want to be clear about the, the original source of that. So I think the key here is that when one starts to understand, like, gosh, I'm really drawn to this thing, that when you understand that one can start making taking steps to to move away from it. Now, the problem with this whole dopamine thing in the context of relationship is that early on, it's incredibly intoxicating to the point where oftentimes people don't realize that they're veering so hard, right? That, that you know, and, and this is where the, the power of friends um, comes in very handy. This is also where we can honestly say that the power of complete and total disclosure about relationship to friend or therapist is really healthy. If you're saying like, you know, I've seen this with some of my male friends. I have female friends too, but most of my friends just happen to be male at this stage of life. That's just kind of my surroundings. And I get the friend that's super excited about somebody and they'll tell you this story about how this, say, oh, you know, and, and there was this crazy thing. She did this crazy thing and they get kind of uh -huh. wild eyed and like, that doesn't sound good. And he's like excited about it. Like, okay, this is, this is your... This is his drug, right? It's uncertainty, it's excitement, 
and I and it follows a very predictable pattern where in three to six months it's him complaining that she's crazy or that the relationship is a mess or that you know the original thing you love now you hate <laughs> exactly there's chaos so I think that here's the I think the takeaway for relationships not just at the beginning not just in the middle um, we can talk about the end in a minute if there is one but. <laughs> To have an awareness where if you sense too much excitement in yourself or too much anticipation mm. of how great someone is, I'm not saying don't fall in love, but be very cautious about the extremes of dopamine. Be very wary about the thing that makes you feel incredible. And I, I say this with some trepidation because I myself, you know, love love. Right. I love love. Uh, I love love. Uh, I love falling in love. Yes. Love falling in love, love being in love. I mean, that's true in romantic relationships. And I also, you know, I, I love having a bulldog. Like I love Tim. Like love, love, love. love you know, I, I have so many loves in life and, and relationships that are always the best of it. Right. But there is this element where it is a bit of a drug, right? It's this thing because it's always about more. And if you really want the relationship, if you want good clarity on the relationship and you want it to last, there has to be a tempering of that. And I don't mean um, playing aloof. I don't mean canceling things last minute. I don't mean playing any kind of games with the dopamine reward prediction error thing. What I mean is just being aware that that chemical state, it, it really is a what comes up comes goes down. And it also puts tremendous demand on the other person, right? Mm -hmm that I think the key of any good relationship is to be able to toggle back and forth, ideally in parallel, like together through these more dopaminergic, like novelty, excitement, and then the more like really getting joy out of just being together, the more serotonergic stuff, like the, the just like, wow, the sweetness, the, the incredible, like the, the cocoon <laughs> um, and missing one another is super healthy. Also remember, Addiction is a progressive narrowing of the things that bring us pleasure, making sure that we continue to derive excitement from other things in life, even when we're falling in love. You know, the concept of the muse and the concept of in a new relationship, there we feel kind of indestructible and we can do anything in life and feeling so inspired. You know, you see this. Happy, people joyful, excited. Oh, I've seen this in family members. Yeah. Also, they're like working out again and you're like, wow, they're using it. But the problem is it's all anchored. It's all tethered to this relationship and the relationship goes and then the rest of the stuff goes too. So again, being able to access these motivational reward systems in a bunch right. of contexts, so critical. And then of course, we see the opposite too. I have a lot of friends who've been, married for a long time. And they're like, yeah, like we never do anything anymore. They're only in that kind of serotonergic. You're going to say we never do it anymore. <laughs> or, or yeah. So do it anymore. and sex is a huge, I mean, it's, we know one thing for sure, which is that all of us are here because either in a dish or in a, well, eventually in a body sperm met egg and develop that, that's just the reality. And that whole process that we call sex, sexual reproduction is strongly anchored to what's called the autonomic arousal system, whereby there's excitement and then, but it can't be too much excitement. It's gotta be calm because if it's too much excitement, it actually inhibits the sexual response that um, believe it or not, the orgasm response in both men and women is driven by the stress system of the body, but it has this positive valence. We say it's a lot of dopamine. And then the why, because then afterwards, whenever that happens to be, there's a return to below baseline levels of energy. This is, we think that the just so story about this is that it's likely so that people will exchange 
smells to pair bond, right? Because pair bonding is pretty vital to human partnership. Um, and obviously people can have sex, not just to raise, to produce and raise young, but then, so the whole like seesawing back and forth, and then it repeats, right? At whatever frequency that couple right. is for them. <laughs> but that whole process is one in which dopamine is strongly released in anticipation and during sex. And, and then afterwards it plummets. And there's another molecule called prolactin, which skyrockets. Mm. Prolactin actually sets the refractory period in which, at least for males, sex can't happen again. Mm -hmm. And what are the other things that induce prolactin in males and females? Well, child rearing. It's linked to the lactation process. Oh, wow. Like the, 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 like the, the coziness thing is not dopaminergic. It's prolactin. It's, it's basically driven by prolactin, oxytocin, and serotonin. So this seesawing back and forth is, is, is at the core of who we are. It's at the core of how we got here. Mm -hmm. All our parents, one way or another, went through this process. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. you know, I always try and think of the exceptions. I'm always teased that I think of every qualified. I suppose in in vitro fertilization, the, the mother and the father went through this process in separate areas yep. of the world. But nonetheless, each one went through the process in more standard natural uh, reproduction as we call it, they took place presumably in the same place. Um, so th this is how we got here. This is how we work. And I think the learning to toggle back and forth between excitement and anticipation, mm -hmm. but never hitting that absolute extreme excitement is a very useful thing. Don't ever hit the ceiling ever. In that way, you maintain motivation, you maintain excitement and learn how to toggle back and forth. So is it possible? Because I'm just thinking about myself at times in my life or somebody out there listening, is it possible to both be so excited and connected that you feel that huge drive and push to like mate and be together and spend time? Or is that um, overly heightened dopamine or state uh, an indication of uh, uh, an unhealthy loop or pattern relationship into people? Oh, I think it can be healthy. I mean, I think, and also remember dopamine is a generic molecule. So for instance, this is, a, if ever there was a, a justification for maintaining a lot of different interests and things that can generate dopamine, here's one. When you're, we talked about before, when you're in a relationship that's really great, you feel more energy to do other things, mm -hmm. the substrate by which adrenaline is created, et cetera. Um, well, the, the opposite is also true. You know, you imagine the couple and one is doing kind of well in life. They're excited about life. The other one is not. Well, the person who's excited about life is sort of like, is in a position to be more excited about the relationship. You know, if you come home from a great day at work um, or you've got a lot going on, you bring that to the relationship. Mm -hmm. That dopamine bleeds over. It's like, because dopamine is all about possibility. It's like, hey, let's take a vacation this year. Let's, or let's take it. It could be a simple thing. Like, let's just take a walk or let's start like going for a swim in the morning or let's, it's all about like, let's create newness, Right. So there is a way in which you could, one can leverage different components of life in order to be more excited about the relationship they're in. I think that there's another piece to this, which is, you know, which is, I think what you're asking, correct me if I'm wrong, which is that, you know, if it, if we're too excited about the relationship, will it inevitably fail? And I think the answer is no. One of the amazing things about love and relationships is that it's really about creating a story in one's mind about the past and what it means and projecting that story forward. And, mm -hmm. and that's, that's something that is just incredible, right? That's, that's sure mating is in, sex is involved, but it's not 
just about that. I was joking, you know, sex is necessary, but not sufficient, right? You need the other elements of, of and, and one of the amazing things about this thing of love and attachment is that it's not all just chemicals and neurotransmitters. I don't want to give that impression. It's also about this ability to, to write, to mutually write a story. Like we met, there was this, this spark, there was this thing, there was this mutual interest. We made it through this hard thing. We, you know, and the key thing, remember dopamine is about projecting into the future. It is important to not just have plans, but to sort of take that story and project it into an infinite number of sequels, not hmm. just the one blockbuster picture that came out and ended. And now we're just going to kind of sit together and only focus on kids. Although kids are hmm. a whole other separate, beautiful dimension of this. Some people don't want them. And oftentimes people will have them thinking that it's going to create, it's going to bring novelty to the relationship. I, can, I know so many people who have gotten divorced about seven or after their kids are about seven to nine years old. I'm like, what is going on here? I think that there are a number of different sort of transitions at that stage where the kids are no longer providing a ton of novelty. They need slightly less caretaking, although still substantial amounts of caretaking. So I think that once one understands how these mechanisms work, you can start to layer them in in ways that meet people's different life requirements. The other thing is the breakup part. You just mentioned this, that did an episode on grieving and breaking of attachments. The brain has a three-part map of all attachments, whether or not it's to a person or to an animal, romantic or non-romantic. We want to know where they are in space. Like literally, are they in Paris right now? Are they here? Where are they? Yeah. Where they are in time? Like, are they present now? When will I see them again? And then there's this attachment map. And those three things are tethered. Think of it like a tripod. They're tethered. When somebody, when we break up or if somebody dies, or if we anticipate that a relationship is going to end, it the grieving process, we know based on neuroimaging, taps into the reward system and creates a system where we are anticipating the, the reward of love and attachment and connection, but it's never going to come. And that is, a, it, it's like an overactivation of desire, the desire when we, but with the knowledge that there's nothing right there. If someone passes away, we're sometimes familiar with like turning around, expecting to see them. The brain expects to see them because the brain has seen them every time we've turned around. You know, waking up with the bed empty next to us is incredibly like it's, I mean, we hopefully people experience at least one breakup in their life. I think it's actually a healthy thing to experience that. Maybe you get back together. Don't do it. Don't break up just to do this folks. But, um, but th that feeling of like, God, like it's like this yearning. Well, that's the, the hungry animal or human who's the food is just out of reach. And the grieving process is one of reordering that map to understand, okay, maybe this person is not in their current physical form, They're di they've died. Maybe that person isn't available to us because there's a breakup. Yeah. Understand that the craving is setting up literally a pain in the body. Remember, pain and pleasure are toggling also. It's right. physical and mental anguish because it's right outside our reach. And even though we cognitively understand mm. that it's not available to us, the body still wants it. And so it takes, you know, I think the current estimates based on imaging and other studies are, it's about 60 days of no contact. That means no text, no scrolling and seeing their social media, no looking at pictures of them, no listening to favorite songs, mm. no selling their shirts or other things. 60 days or so to reset those mechanisms just huh. to get back to kind of neutral, unless it was a terrible relationship, in which case people are celebrating. What makes someone have a more emotional breakup than another? 
Oh, that's a great question. There's a phenomenon called, um, and this is beautiful work done by Mary Frances O'Connor at the University of Arizona. Um, she's written a wonderful book about this. There's something called complex or complicated grief. Hmm. Complex, complicated grief is grief that goes on much longer and it has a kind of more of a depressive like state to it. It's the person who's still talking about the person that they broke up with or that broke up with them a, two years later. Oh my mm -hmm. goodness, this is so annoying to friends and family. And yet that person is really in a, in a place of intense, complicated grief. So right. it's good to acknowledge that. And oftentimes if someone died, then that complicated grief can extend even longer. Complicated right. grief is, um, tends to happen more in people that have poor anxiety and stress coping mechanisms going into the relationship. So, so like the anxious attachment or avoidant attachment or something or more of an anxious attachment could be, it could also be that the person just naturally, um, they're, uh, sort of like idling RPM is higher. We all have this, like, so for instance, some people move around a lot more, just standing around. Um, some people are just, you know, calmer. Uh, I always like to compare people to animals and bulldog bulldogs and bulldog breeds, for instance, are incredibly like most of the time, unless there's something to be excited about. If you look at a pit bull type breed or a terrier, they kind of have a lot of- My like, Belgian Malinois. Yeah, exactly. You have a Malinois? Yeah. Amazing. Uh, my neighbors have a Malinois. Yeah, that thing is like up and down the fence line. Up and down. Oh, yeah. 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 Costello, my bulldog, he's dead now, but he he would, um, I mean, Costello, the, the, the Roomba vacuum oh, would hit him in the face. <laughs> and, he like, and he wouldn't even blink. He was just like, because that's the bulldog, right? The bulldog is an incredibly, what we call parasympathetic dominant animal. It's autonomic nervous system just idles just above sleep. Whereas- I need some more bulldog in me. Yeah. yeah I mean, I got him because, I mean, as, as you can probably tell, I, you know, I, I like, you know, I, I think, talk and move fast. And, um, but- You're standing during the interview, aren't you? Yeah. Like, well, yeah. what's that? Are you standing during the interview too? I am standing. I actually don't do anything <laughs> quickly. I, I like in life. I'm I'm very slow. Very. I don't do anything quickly. Okay. Like I, mean, I suppose I eat kind of fast, but I just don't do anything quickly. Um, and but if I'm excited by something, obviously I'll uh, try and pack as much information in there as I possibly can. But I got Costello because I thought that his demeanor was just a great demeanor to have around. It's incredibly calming. Yeah. So I think that. You know, we we all have a kind of a, a baseline RPM and there are tools like breathing tools. I've talked about some of these before. You can do double inhales through the nose and long exhales through the mouth mm -hmm. to rapidly de-stress the so-called physiological sigh. You mm -hmm. can get massages, do saunas, exercise. Like We're all doing things to manage our stress level. Some people are doing it to kind of burn off the extra energy we have. Other people are doing it to get energy. It, it varies. but yeah. People who are naturally have what's uh, what we call a high pre-pulse startle. So if you walk up behind me and you say, Andrew, I'll lightly go, yep. But some people you say, um, hello, and they'll go, yep. And then other people you go, hello, they go, yep, right? So pre-pulse startle, like in one case, sort of like moderate, like reaction time. And yeah. some people sort of like, yeah, like, hey, mellow. And then other people are, they're jumpy. You, you go high and they go, huh, right? They're jumpy. Their autonomic nervous system is kind of idling. And mm. like, they're not redlining, but they're close. And they're closer to a panic attack all the time. Oh. So mm. there's people can use to bring that down. I think that the data pretty clearly show that 
complicated grief is often predicted by people that have a higher level of anxiety going in or a higher propensity for depression. So even if you're somebody who hasn't experienced a major loss due to breakup or, or death, if you consider yourself a kind of anxious person, mm -hmm. then I would highly recommend accessing some of the, the behavioral tools to try and learn how to control your nervous system mm -hmm. so that when those look, losses inevitably come, yeah. they inevitably come. Yeah. So, and they're a part of life and, and being able to navigate those in a clear, coherent way is, is never a perfect process. There's no, there's an art to it, but no one does this well. If you live a good life and you love people, when they yeah. die, it just plain hurts. Fair, yeah. But that yeah. love has no place to go. Yeah. It's, it's like like grief is love with no place to go. What if you're, I mean, I'm just, I'm speaking from experience. Like I've gone through this, but I'm not an anxious person. I have only ex experienced anxiety like twice, two or three times in my life. Um, and it was a very isolated little short period of time. So I'm not an anxious person, but I did go through uh, what felt like a very difficult breakup. And so is it also, is there an, an aspect of um, a more traumatic breakup that uh, is associated with um, perhaps trauma, past trauma and um interpersonal interpersonal dynamics that are unhealthy that have yet to be resolved and that's the extra pain sure i mean yes and i think you know and this can um be nuanced and complicated and it you know obviously um you know breakups that involve uh you know heavy financial negotiations child negotiations okay. pet negotiations right sure. like i mean i've been through this before it's like no, it's, the I know. <laughs> it's like it's my yeah and or even if you don't sometimes it's even worse if you're not fighting over it it's because you you both want to be together as the dog parent but you don't want to be together as a couple right it's like like the human attachment is so complicated in this way um i still think that it, they're worth pursuing and investing in but i think that um look trauma is a very real part of it i mean just like dopamine is a generic system serotonin is a generic system essentially wired into us to deal with lots of different kinds of situations. Well, so too that the attachment system is, you know, is wired for, you know, we'd all love to think about the one person that is for us, but of course there are small in most cases, but a, a number of different people that we could potentially bond with in a healthy way. And when that ends, there's a whole set of, of ideas about loss being generic, right? Like people start feeling a loss of a relationship and they start feeling all it's as if they start feeling all the other losses that they had, like the oh. relationship before that. And people start talking about, gosh, it never works out in all these things. And they kind of overlook the fact that they've had so many relationships and it's worked to create, but then break up eventually mm -hmm. over and over again. So I think that the, the key theme here is that the, the systems of, of moving apart can, can reactivate or kind of cue us to the, the previous losses we've had. And it depends on the backdrop, you know, that there's been uh, some data on this, you know, who fares better in a breakup. I mean, I don't, my anecdotal. Like men and women, men versus women, you mean? Or? Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I want to go there, but not for political correctness reasons, but I, I don't know how good the data are. What I will say this is the person who is able to feel the intense sadness um, and maybe anger and maybe also love and maybe also regret and maybe also shame and maybe also anger. The person who can 
get closest to the real feelings, we'll move through it more quickly. If there's one thing that's absolutely true about breakups and trauma generally is that all good forms, effective forms of moving through trauma and challenge involve feeling one's feelings and not sublimating them into more work or sublimating them into anger or sublimating them into finding a new partner too quickly. Right. The reality is the person who confronts the reality and the feelings more frequently and in more depth at the, at the breakup is the person who is going to emerge from it more quickly. But there's no doubt in my mind about that. And there, there are some studies that kind of speak to that. I think that does this mean like taking two weeks off from work just to mourn the relationship? Maybe, but the challenge is one also has to be a functional person during the course of a breakup. And so this, there are, there is a time to kind of pack it down, go to work, pack it down, tend to be other people that need you pack it down, continue to invest in oneself and health and whatnot. But I think that people who mask um, challenge of any kind, but especially psychological challenge with substances or distraction, inevitably those people fare worse. And, um, and nowadays it's much harder. I think that the breakups involve um, access to the person. Like when I was growing up, you broke up and you had a home phone and that was it. And maybe a friend, I remember this, a friend saying uh, like, you know, so-and-so is dating so-and-so and and you're like, right. Uh, Now you can see it. Like that stings, you know, now it's like people are doing their own detective work. Yeah. So, so the block function and then the mute function is an appropriate, healthy um, thing. Uh, I believe. And yet people's curiosity about this gets right into, you know, there's a whole dimension of like, what is the neuroscience of jealousy? And, and that that's uh, tricky, but I think that breakups are there. They're, they're like deaths. If there was, if it was a relationship that one wanted, mm-hmm. even if not, they're like deaths mm-hmm. and they, they need to be looked at and moved through, through the lens of grief and grieving and complex grief and healthy grief. And a lot of people think that grief is like depression. The data show that grief is nothing like depression. Grief Grief is anticipation of a reward that you know will never be actualized again. And even in saying that, there's like a little bit of a pang there. It's like, oh yeah, oh. thirsty. It's like being thirsty, and the glass of water is empty, and it mm. will never be full. And so you go, well, how do I deal with that? And it's this weird, diabolical mm. way of it. Actually, it's required to go into that experience rather than trying to pretend the glass will eventually be full again, or rather than we're going and looking for another glass of water right away. Got it's it weird, right? You would think it would be like, just distract yourself, move on, form a new attachment. Now that said, some people have a very strong attachment drive. They're very affiliative. And for some people, and I'm not suggesting people run out and like sleep with a bunch of people or date a bunch, but for some people, like getting away from the smells and reminders of that person can be very helpful because it's like a it's just, otherwise they're being con- constantly, you know, bask, you know, getting overwhelmed with the kind of re- like subconscious reminders. Right. Right. So sometimes moving to a new location is good. Sure. Sure. You know, don't date famous people. What's that? Don't date famous people. There's a good rule out there for people that want, uh, that want a healthy relationship, which is if you are somebody who has a, a, a big following, I, I don't think that people with big following 
they should sort of set a limit, like find the person who doesn't have an Instagram account or something, you know, I'm just joking. Um, you know, I mean, that's, but I do think that the ability to, to do detective work yeah. Yeah. on people that we now are trying to move away from is yeah. very, is very toxic. Are we, what is the real purpose? Like what's the biology of finding someone? And I'm very curious of whether or not that's like um, a pattern in our in our reality that is flawed and that this sort of eternal seeking for the one is just is is um, cause causes a lot of pain and frustration. And because it's always looked at that a failure and an ending is a failure. And um, I'm curious what the real if there is a biological reason why you should find one person. Well, that's a, okay. So I can't answer this with any certainty. And, um, you know, it's, a, I'm sort of half smiling because these days th- there's a lot of interest in whether or not, you know, this is going to be modified over time, uh, as, as social structures change and legal structures change. I mean, there are legal incentives for monogamous yeah. marriage, right? right? I mean, like tax incentives and, sure. like, and there are people who will say, oh, well, you kind of write that back to the history of it. And this was designed for this reason or that reason. Um, I had a guest on the podcast, maybe you're aware of him or talked to him, David Buss, who's a professor at um, uh, University of Texas, Austin, who's written, a, he's an evolutionary psychologist. He's one of the luminaries and founders of that field. And I asked him, because um, I said, you know, a number of people that I know are talking more and more about, and I have some friends who are actually in um, so-called uh, open relationships or polyamorous relationships. Like that's not my proclivity, but that's right. like, that's, that's what they're in. And, yeah, and it's rising and different. And sometimes it's symmetric. Like they both see other people, sometimes asymmetric, like just he or just she sees other people in any event. And he said, you know, that there's been an, a growing trend in recent years, the research says, toward people rewriting um, some of the rules of typical rules of relationship in order to... Um, in order to counter these fear of loss and, and, um, and breakup and yet having to deal with some of the more primitive aspects of our wiring, like jealousy. Right. I mean, um, I think, uh, people still, people in those relationship arrangements still get jealous. And actually sometimes the jealousy is the fuel for the renewing. This is kind of like, there are people. That sounds like a fun loop. That, uh, yeah, not to me, but it, but I think to some people, no, of course no, I realized you were being, uh, <laughs> I realized you were being uh, sarcastic, but it's interesting. So why the one? Well, I think that human relationships and, and pair bonding, as it were, so here we're thinking about the more typical scenario is monogamous relationship, um, maybe even monogamous marriage, right? Um, is certainly the most typical. And we do write stories about that from the time we're very young. You hear about like princess and prince and you hear oh, about. Oh, gosh. Yeah. You know, I mean, my now, sister's little girls are like, when are you going to get married and have babies? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> right, right. So th- there's a scripting of the story. Right. And nowadays, I think there is a lot more room around. Like I know a number of very, very happy, amazing couples that don't have kids. Um, they do have dogs. Just saying. Um, but they. But they have, they seem very happy and, and they've chosen not to have children. I know people who have lots of children seem to just want more and more. And that's where they, they, they thrive. I think that um, there is a, whatever the story is in one's mind about what success represents in relationship mm-hmm. will be the driver of whether or not these chemical systems are activated to a greater or lesser degree. So for instance, if someone really wants marriage and children, they can tell 
like deep down and they tell, they can tell themselves all day that, you know, they're okay with the fact that their partner doesn't want kids, but at the, but the reality is they're always going to feel a little bit underwhelmed by their own experience unless they do that cognitive remapping to go, okay, well, got all these other things, right? So the power of of decision-making is strong, but it's not infinite. The power of understanding a mechanism or understanding, okay, well, got all this, although I didn't get that, is powerful, but it's not infinite. We can't, I, I don't believe that we can completely overcome our deepest wishes for ourselves. I don't. Um, and that's a, maybe will depress certain people, but I would hope that it would serve as kind of a motivator for really thinking about what those are. And, you know, for a lot of people, um, this is getting more psychological, but I think a lot of people actually are not that in touch with what they want, which frankly shouldn't surprise us because how can you know what you want if you've never actually experienced it before? Like if you don't have a very clear narrative about what it is that is going to make you happy, how in the world could you seek (laughs) the thing that makes you happy with any- right? hundred percent certainty. An arrow aimed at anything. Right. And a lot of people will write the script as well. You know, we weren't planning on having a kid, but then it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Or, you know, I never thought I'd end up with somebody like this, but then um, I, now I just think about all their amazing qualities. Like our ability to reshape and rationalize in a positive way is, is remarkable, but again, not infinite. And so I think that the, I do believe that the, the, the honest conversation with ourselves and with other people, whether or not in the context of a friendship or a therapist, or if someone is truly alone and, you know, journaling, right, is incredibly powerful. And, you know, this is, has, a, has roots in some classic psychology where people would do empty chair work. It's kind of an old technique now, but people will literally stand in front of an empty chair just by themselves, no therapist around, and have a conversation with themselves. Why would that be useful? Well, some of the early psychologists realized that honest conversation with oneself is prone to all sorts of, like your mind can get distracted. You can, it's hard to third person yourself um, in, in your own head, mm-hmm. right? But, but if you, if you will see yourself there in this empty chair, that can be, sure. that can be useful in bringing about like, wow, like real honesty. I think people do all sorts of things. They drink too much. They go on um, different types of journeys of, of different kinds, pharmacologic or others. So they think that the, the truth is just going to kind of emerge. And um, while I don't have judgment about those those pursuits, I think that um, it it's worth people really thinking about what they truly want. And I think nowadays there's um, there's almost a shame associated for it's not a good one, but a, a shame associated with really defining with what one wants. Uh, defining what one wants and really articulating it. Because let's be honest, the moment that one is really clear about what they want is also the moment in which they, the not getting it becomes more powerful as a punishment or kind of lack of dopamine reward. So there's a power in, in, in denial, right? Um, anyway, this is getting very psychological, but wow. my stance is I really believe that um, h- human relationships are among the, the most incredible source of these these things because of the learning that occurs there. Like, I think one of the, the most important pieces of scientific data that I've ever learned is from my colleague, Ali Crum, who's in the Department of Psychology. She works on mindsets. Um, I think this will resonate because uh, your mindset is, is, is such a strong one. And I think that she's studied stress. She's studied fitness. She's a clinic, a 
clinical psychologist, research professor at Stanford, and was a D1 athlete. She's an amazing person. Love to, you guys should chat at some point. I feel like there would be, I want to be a fly on the wall for that conversation. But they've done experiments where basically if people take the mindset that stress grows you or that in a relationship, effort counts or that stress on a relationship, obviously you don't want to endanger oneself, but that if, if you take the mindset, stress grows me, then outcomes are far better than if people think yeah. that stress can be avoided. And it seems so simple, but that mindset is a very rare one. In fact, in her studies, they only really saw that mindset occur reflexively in um, already through SEAL training operatives in the SEAL, in the SEAL community. Everyone else, everyone else, D1 athletes, professional athletes, entrepreneurs, students, doesn't matter where they went to school, like now stress is bad. In any case, I think Ali's, uh, Dr. Crow, Ali's data are remarkable because they show that essentially what we believe about stress and challenge defines the trajectory of the relationship to that stress or challenge. And in the context of relationship, if both people, and here's the challenge, both people take the mindset, like we're going to try and make this as great as possible, but should we hit hard times? That's just making us better in a year. Yeah. They think it's a sign. There's a lot of people that think that stress or when something goes wrong, it's a bad sign. Right. And, and in fact, stress is a chemical cue to the brain that we need to rewire and change something. And that's an opportunity for rewiring. And I think that, um, you know, people say challenge is an opportunity for growth, but that like in the physiology context, when the body is stressed, the brain goes, wait a second, everything's different about this environment. And whatever happens now is going to dictate how I'm going to function in the future. If the brain never gets stressed, why would it ever change? It's like it's doing everything okay. just fine. The stress is a chemical um, milieu. It's like bad weather that says, oh, you know, we need to patch the roof, right? Without that mm -hmm. bad weather, it's just these gaping holes are always sitting there unbeknownst to us. Mm, okay. Well, then I'll ask these last two questions. They kind of go hand in hand. And the first part is just, do you know yourself? Oh, my. Well, I certainly believe that among the best advice in the world is, I certainly can come up with this, is the oracle, know thyself. I mean, I've, oh, I like to think so. Um, I know, I know the feeling states that I prefer. And I like to think that I've expanded the number and range of feeling states that I am willing to experience. And I think that serves me well at this stage, you know, without getting into a lot of backstory. I mean, I mean, I've done, I've been in therapy for a very long time. It was actually a requirement of me being able to stay in school because I was, a, I was a wild, not good teenager. Um, <laughs> and my life circumstances were, 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 were challenging, less than some, more than others. But um, I mean, I definitely continue to do my own personal work. Um, I know my need for physical exercise and for goal setting and drive and learning. I, I have a rule. I need, to, I need to do one difficult physical thing every day and yeah. one difficult mental thing each day. Oh, that's great. What about the sloth day though? I deprive myself of that, of that pursuit, both pursuits. I just won't allow it. I just want, okay. and it drives me crazy, but it's what allows me to lean into it for the <laughs> other six days of the week. Uh, so I think I know myself pretty well. Um, yeah. I know that I still have blind spots um, and I know yeah. that um, and I know that, you know, my way of being, uh, you know, uh, is uh, not for everybody. And um, and I'm not 
concerned about that. I think that that's something that comes with age. I think I'm, I'm 46 now and I'll be 47 soon. And, and I, I kind of looked forward to the stage where I, I certainly, if I ever offend somebody or I, you know, insult them in any way, I, that, that would be inadvertent, I can assure you. But, um, but I would hope they'd tell me and then I'd modify my behavior. But I no longer spend any time whatsoever thinking about whether or not I'm getting approval or, or not from people or validation. That's a free place to be. Yeah, I think that, that all people um, should seek to, like, to um, untether from the need for validation. I'm happy if people like what I'm doing. I'm not pleased if they don't in the sense that I, especially if they're people I'm close to, I'll try and adjust. Uh, I don't really feel much from um, just sort of uh, like judgment unless it's given to me as a, uh, like with it, with a, Hey, like you might consider doing it this way instead. Uh, well, the second well, question no. I was going to ask was going to be, how did you achieve that? Do you feel like you answered that through therapy and time and age? Uh, therapy really helps as long as you have a good rapport with the therapist, right? According to Paul Conti, that's the critical thing. Rapport, rapport, rapport. I have a good rapport mm-hmm. with the therapist and 100% honest disclosure, um, start to finish. Um, with self and the other person and, and yes, and self care, like meaning, um, hard physical exercise, hard cognitive work. Yeah. I think I've had to work at it, but the main one, and this is the stinger is that life experience, right? I've, I've had a lot of people die. I've had breakups. I've had great relationships. I've had, you you know, you have to live life, uh, as you know, like one has to live life and make mistakes, hopefully not fatal ones. Um, but make mistakes so that you have the opportunity to learn and then, but try not to make the mistakes twice. So experience and a hell of a lot of introspection and well, a lot of work, basically. You have to care and want it. Okay. Well then the last question is what, what is it, what question is it that you most want answered? Like what's the thing that you wake up thinking about, you go to bed, you walk around, you look out and you're like, man, I just really want to know. That's a great question. I, I concern myself with uh, not why questions, but how questions. So mm-hmm. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about whether or not we have free will or why we're here or not here. I have thoughts about that um, and curiosity about that. But I never wonder why, like why me or why are people so crazy or why are, you know, bulldogs so great? I, I don't ask why questions. Um, I decided pretty early stage and still now to concern myself with how questions. I look at the world and I think, where are the pain points and the opportunities for growth? People are stressed. People need sleep. People need to improve their fitness. People need to um, move through relationships, break up. And I think, like, how? How how can we do this better? What are the tools? How can we do this better? How can I contribute? How can I take my life and and make my time here useful for as many people as, as possible? before the reaper gets me, which inevitably they will, right? That's mm-hmm. one thing we know for sure. Um, hopefully David Sinclair will push that number out. David's got us all to 120 right now. He tells me that I eat too much steak and that I'm going to die by 75. I, I say 76. There's a lot more people that die from not eating steak than eating steak. I would argue that too. And I'm half Argentine. So, you know, um, <laughs> but the, I think, I think that's really where I'm at these days. And, and I always was. And I think like now and forever, I concern myself with how can I make my life count while also enjoying my day-to-day experience? And how can I 
take that. I've been very blessed, right? I've had some challenges in my life, but I've been very blessed. And I want to take what I learn and what I can find. And I want to get it out to as many people as possible so that they can benefit. Mm. And so it's a how, how, how can I do that better? So is then if we distill it down to a how, is it how can I contribute to society the most? The simple one line question would be real close to that. It would be how can I make my life as beneficial to humanity now and going forward as possible? Well, that's extremely admirable. It's, that's wonderful. It's just the Thank way you. it's the way I'm wired. I'm hardwired that way. That's that why way. you're into so many things. That's why you have you talk about attachment, but then you talk about cold therapy and you talk about like all the different things because how can you do that unless you help in so many different categories? And I suppose in from a selfish perspective, um by making it a broad pursuit, there's no way I can achieve that across the board for everything and everyone. But what that means is that there's dopamine forever for me. There, what is it, 3,500 things that you like? At least 3,500 pet peeves and at least 3,500 loves. Yeah. So, so. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was very interesting. Thanks for, for having me on. I realized that I, I talked far more than I listened and I apologize for that. I have a, a ton of questions for you, but we'll save that for another time. Maybe um, <clears throat> if we're lucky, you'd come on the podcast and then I can um, ask you questions about you and your experience. Fascinating. I love it. And I love your show. It's it's seriously, I, I, I don't know how much time you spend putting into your episodes, especially the solos where you're talking about things, but it's a lot of information in that head. Well, thanks. I, um, it's a lot of prep, but I really enjoy it. And um, again, it's, I've been doing that since I was a little kid. I used to give lectures in class on Mondays until they, really? they stopped me. Yeah. It's, it's sort of, I have a bit of a scientific Tourette's. I sort of can't help it. I love it. It's fantastic. I mean, I'm on vacation right now um, and I'm in Newport Beach and like I just go for a walk for hours and just listen, especially this week. I knew I was talking to you, so I listened all week. So I wasn't listening to music when I went running. I was listening to you. Thanks so much. I, I really appreciate it. And I have great admiration and respect for your accomplishments and also the fact that you didn't just take those and stop, that you're clearly on um, yet another uh, incredible mission. So I I look forward to more discussion. On another dopamine hit, you know? Yep. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.